1: I'm Chris Farrell from the official GunnaGeek.com podcast, a proud member of the GunnaGeek Geek Network, just like the show you're listening to now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual. Check out all the other geeky podcasts over at GunnaGeekNetwork.com and get ready, because geekiness begins in 3, 2, 1.
3: On this debut episode, we're talking The Last Jedi, DC's continued film problems, and so much more as many of the great shows within the pop Culture, Cosmos converge to create our new adventure as we delve into the PCC multiverse. Multiverse, multiverse, multiverse.
4: Multiverse. Don't be alarmed. The quasi shimmering light before you is a trans dimensional gateway to other worlds, other voices, other thoughts, and other realities. Up feels like down, and down feels like the number seven on a Wednesday morning. Don't worry. That quivering, blood-boiling sensation under your eyebrows is all a part of the charm. Welcome to the PCC Multiverse.
3: Hi, and welcome to the initial broadcast of the PCC Multiverse. My name is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and Game Source. This is truly, truly a pleasure to be again on the Podcast Radio Network. We're here Friday nights. 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Once again, at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific right here on the Podcast Radio Network. And we're coming to a whole bunch of downloadable outlets, iTunes, Stitcher. Podcast.com, Google Play, all the great stations that we're already on with the Pop Culture Cosmos show, which has done by leaps and bounds more than our expectations. And we truly appreciate it. If you haven't checked that show out, which is a, a truly a great show indeed, check it out on the Podcast Radio Network and tons of audio outlets, which I just mentioned. And that's going to be on the Podcast Radio Network Monday nights at 10:30 Eastern, 7:30 Pacific time. It's great now to, to finally start a new show. It's called the PCC Multiverse. We truly appreciate you being part of the program. And who better to introduce the show with me than my good friend and co-creator of the Pop Culture Cosmos universe. He is the man, the myth, the legend behind the Rob McCallum Films Empire. It is Rob McCallum. How are you, my friend?
4: I'm excited to be in the multiverse. Indeed. Multiverse, multiverse, multiverse. Oh, no! Multiple realities converging on each other! Ah!
3: Oh, my that's gosh. I, that's how I thought you were going to, like, start the show. Welcome to the multiverse. Like a Star Trek episode, indeed. But uh, or, or, like, maybe some,
4: like, Twilight show. There exists many planes of reality. This is just one of them.
3: When indeed. you continue
4: to listen, you will be exposed to different worlds, different feelings, different emotions that you never thought were possible. This is the PCC Multiverse.
3: Oh, that was pretty good. You should do a voiceover like that. that... Oh, there
4: you go. We'll try.
3: Oh, yeah, well. no, it's good to be here, and
4: it's glad. Uh, what a great time slot, man, right now for this for this show on Friday night. And heck, you know what? Our Monday night show, The Originator, the PCC, great time slot as well, Monday and Friday. Glad everybody's with us. This is fantastic.
3: It is indeed, and we hope you're driving safe home if you're listening to it in the car. Uh, we truly appreciate it uh, as far as it's concerned. But the, the Pop Culture Cosmos family of shows, the PCC Multiverse is just going to be a great collection of, of a great programming that we have on here for you each and every week on the, in this time slot. So we truly appreciate it. Or if you're downloading it, we truly appreciate that as well. Rob, you know, I could tell everybody out there what the PCC Multiverse is all about. But since you did such a great voiceover, tell us a little bit more about what the PCC Multiverse is all about.
4: The PCC Multiverse is a cross-dimensional voyage between all the great shows that make up the pop culture cosmos. You'll sit back and enjoy 5, 10, and 15-minute segments from the cavalcade family of geek, awesome, momentum nerd shows that we have as part of our team, and enjoy everything.
3: And who Speaking better,
4: of which, yes, who has just entered which? through the portal... Of the multiverse.
3: <laughs> What's up, guys?
4: Hey, the it's Josh.
3: Demon, Josh. <laughs> it is. It is Josh Peterson. He is also the director of Ghost Toasters, the author of Vendetta Dark, and the upcoming "Congratulations, You Suck," and author uh, and producer behind several of the shows within the family. Welcome. We truly appreciate you being part of the initial initial broadcast for the PCC
5: Multiverse. Hey, thanks. I'm I'm honored to have uh, jumped in on this little multiverse. That's
3: that's awesome. So, uh, again, like Rob was saying, this is a collection. Uh, You know, we've got so many shows out there that we do as far as, uh, you know, that's concerned. The Pop Culture Cosmos show, for one. There's also Wine Women Awards. The ladies uh, there, Diana and Michelle, they do a great job. I'm telling you right
4: now, Wine Women Awards, guys, don't be turned off by the title. Don't be scared. You're going to learn a few things. Trust me on that one. You need all the help you can get. I need all the help I can get. You need to listen to that show.
3: It's classy. It is. It is indeed. And they, they have a lot of great authors that they get on the show as well. I know Rob has a lot of great stuff that he does, including the trenches, including also as well, GamerCast with J. Rob and Glenn. And then he's got another uh, you know additional podcast coming on the way. You know, as far as Josh, tell us what you've got cooking as far as that people can expect on a regular dose of the PCC Multiverse.
5: Um, you have the Chad and Travis's musical show about music, which is just uh, Hyper Schmidt and a friend talking about music and writing and reviewing some albums. Uh, you have the Double J Filmcast, where we sit around and talk about movies. Uh, it might not be the most educated opinions, but uh, we enjoy talking about them. And we have a video game podcast that doesn't have a title yet. And another one called Travis Versus the World, which uh, I don't have a lot of details for you yet on that one.
3: Uh, no worries indeed, but we'll be playing a, a big sample of, of each of them uh, as they appear on a weekly basis. And uh, basically, we'll give you the info on where to catch the full shows indeed. We may have larger segments from time to time depending how it flows and whatnot. But we truly appreciate all the cooperation between all the different various formats that we got indeed. And then also just appreciate everyone out there listening. First and foremost, you listening out there to the PCC Multiverse and also the Pop Culture Cosmos show as well. So we got a great show indeed lined up for you. We got a lot of great segments already on the queue. Got a galaxy far, far away. Going to step in here in a little bit. Stuff from the trenches. Don't and, and pretend you know what you're going to play, Gerald. You don't know. You're afraid. <laughs> to, you're afraid to stare deep into the heart of that trans-dimensional
4: gateway. Oh no, no, no! I'm going to stare into it. And in I'm going to dive.
6: Greatness.
3: I am going to dive right in. You know, the Game Source Podcast will be on there as well. And I know some Josh has got some great stuff lined up. So we truly appreciate, again, you being part of the program right here on the PCC Multiverse. So without further ado, we're going to get everything started here. But let's kick things off before we head into our first show. Wait a second. So
5: is this going to be like Marvel Comics when one of our shows doesn't work out? Are we going to destroy it and then just act like it didn't happen?
4: Yeah, we'll Um, pretend that uh, Earth 3 didn't exist and and that'll be
5: that. (laughs) Goodbye, Ultimates.
3: Yes, indeed. Indeed. uh, You know, I guess... I guess, yeah, why not? Sure, absolutely. Sure. Indeed. If that makes it easier, okay. All right. But before we get into our first show, we're going to head on out with a great song by Hyperschmidt, indeed. It's about to win. That'll kick things off here in the PCC multiverse. We truly appreciate you being part of the program. Any last thoughts before we head out? Just you better buckle up and enjoy the transdimensional
4: intergalactic ride of your lifetime.
5: Wow. Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, that. I can't explain it better than that. That was pretty epic. So anything I say is going to fall short.
3: There you go. Indeed. So for uh, Josh Peterson, Rob McCallum, this is Gerald Glassford. Thank you again for being part of the PCC. You multiverse. can't do that on this show. You'll be disintegrated and we'll destroy your reality. <laughs> Fair enough, indeed. This is the PCC multiverse. <laughs>
6: Waiting just to see the light When did this become a fight? Struggle just to fill my lungs with air. Staring at the finish line The darkness running out of time I'll do what it takes to get you there
3: about to win from hyperschmidt catch more of their hit songs today on their youtube channel and hyperschmidt.com that's h-y-p-e-r s-c-h-m-i-t-t dot com coming up next jay bartlett shares his thoughts on the last jedi on his show a galaxy far far away this is the pcc multiverse
4: Get ready for Box Art, a gaming docuseries from Pyre Productions and Rob McCallum Films in 2017. If you love video games, chances are there's a box cover or cover image that you love and has stuck with you for decades. In our series Box Art, we travel across North America to visit with the unknown illustrators and artists responsible for creating the most iconic gaming images of all time. What was once scheduled to be a 90-minute documentary is now a six-episode season packed with unbelievable tales that paint a picture of the gaming industry you've never imagined. Fox Art arrives this year, just one of the many pop culture projects from Rob McCallum, Empire Productions.
7: Welcome to a Galaxy Far Far Away podcast, I'm your host Jay Bartlett, and holy crap, what a week this has been Star Wars fans, this Tuesday we finally got the title for episode 8, which is The Last Jedi, classic title, what do you guys think, I think it's classic anyway, I think it's more bold and more crisp and clean and precise than the first time I heard The Force Awakens, which I'm still a fan of that title. But The Last Jedi definitely stands out more. I think it's more of an iconic name. uh, And it speaks volumes, and it opens up many questions as to who The Last Jedi is. Now, of course, there can be Two possibilities that stick out right in front. uh, That's, of course, Luke Skywalker. Blah. Or Rey, who we see at the end of The Force Awakens delivering his father's lightsaber to him with the uh, big open-ended question with no words needed. Please save the galaxy once again, Luke. The Last Jedi. Hmm. There is a really, really great uh, quote by Supreme Leader Snoke from Force Awakens 2 where he quotes Luke Skywalker as being the last Jedi. I'll actually play that clip at the end of the podcast there just to remind everybody. But, yep, the name was there the whole time, guys, right in plain sight. Kind of like Palpatine, hidden in plain sight. And if I remember correctly, in Return of the Jedi, when Luke visits Yoda... For the final time before Yoda becomes one with the Force. Uh, He says, Luke, when gone am I, the last of the Jedi will you be. So that's pretty cool, too. Anyways, I'm excited, guys. I cannot wait for December. I wish they'd go a little bit more old school and go back to the summertime in May because May is just... uh, better i like the summer a lot better than the winter but there's of course all that holiday excitement fourth quarter etc etc and i have no doubt you guys are super excited just like i am for episode eight the last jedi let me know what you think in the comments below guys do you like the name the last jedi do you think it's too simple Um, do you think it's stupid? Like, what do you think, guys? Let me know, drop me a line, and let's talk about that. Anyways, guys, till next time, may the Force be with you.
3: Catch all the episodes of A Galaxy Far, Far Away today on Podbean. Right now, we've got a sneak peek at our next episode of the Pop Culture Cosmos, coming Monday night to the Podcast Radio Network and eight other great audio outlets. What are your thoughts as far as Avatar? I know there's plans as far as five films in the making. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, five in total.
4: And there's yes. a theme park uh, expansion at Disney World as well for an Avatar land as part of yes. Animal Kingdom.
3: Now, that, that I, I you know, when I was there earlier, you know, halfway through last year, I know that that was uh, already, you know, getting underway as far as it's concerned. So what are your thoughts as far as the Avatar universe? Do you think it's something that can actually really gain a foothold again with audiences or do you think it's just something that's going to be uh, you know, as popular in the theaters and then it just, you know, goes away from there? And do you think it has the legs to do five? Much well, less? I mean two? here's the
4: thing, right. Like it's been such a long time since that first film came out. I think in 2008, fall of 2008, Christmas 2008, I didn't see it until January of 2009. This, this is what everybody's got to remember. Sure, it hasn't made the the impact. It's not quotable. It wasn't an original fresh story. But it executed incredibly well. It took advantage of IMAX and 3D technology. Um, CG imagery was pretty fantastic in that. You cannot ever, 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 ever count out James Cameron. Nobody believed in Titanic. That movie did okay. Nobody was 100% sure if he could pull off an original fantasy film. Avatar did okay. Now... Cameron likes to take long breaks between projects, and then he likes to get fully immersed in them. So the fact that they're basically making four new films, I think, will really help cement it in the you know the public consciousness to become part of that pop culture uh, lexicon so people can quote it, so people can be immersed. It's not just going to be the films. Like I said, with the theme park kind of expansion, there's going to be toys. You know there's going to be video games. Um, it's it's going to be part of it. And while it feels really strange and foreign to us, because that blip in the radar kind of came and went, because it has been, you know, what, eight years, seven, eight years, I think that's all going to be erased really soon. It, it it feels like it's missed a generation for some people, or it was like, oh, I remember when that, that film when I grew up, but it's going to come back really quickly into everybody's kind of purview. And It'll give us a reason to go back and watch the other one, and I'm sure there'll be something in these sequels that make us appreciate that first one even more, in the same way that Rogue One kind of pays off little things in A New Hope to make us appreciate that a little bit more. Uh, Just don't count it out. I understand why people aren't excited. That is going to change, I think, once marketing starts to kick in, once you start to see some trailers, once this beast finally hits the world. You don't don't plan four films unless you really have something cooking.
3: Why don't you think it, it has uh, gained that continuous popularity that, say, a Star Wars has, you know, for example? Oh, well, it's just, it's been too long since the first
4: one, right? And there hasn't been anything that it's fed off of. Even when Phantom Menace came back, uh, in, or when it came to the theaters in 99, sure, there was, like, you know, what, an 18-year gap or a 17-year gap, but those first three films were so memorable. And let's not forget you had the release of Star Wars on home video to help keep that alive. You had Droids cartoon to help keep it alive. So there was lots of different stuff, and then you had special edition to keep it alive. So the and the Power of the Force collection as toys. So with Star Wars, you've never had anything for more than a couple years without something new, including books and video games. That's the
3: Pop Culture Cosmos Show, the number one rated show on Monday nights on the Podcast Radio Network at ten thirty p.m. Eastern, seven thirty p.m. Pacific and available for download on the Tangent Bound, ESO, and Gunna Geek Networks, and also available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Podcast.com. So what are the problems with the DC movie universe? We'll find out next with the Double J Filmcast. This is the PCC Multiverse.
5: David Ayer has... Uh, penned a letter to suicide squad fans talking about you know, he's he 's gotten a lot of crap about suicide squad and how people are unhappy with it, but it is what here it had a budget of one hundred and seventy five million and it 's made seven hundred and forty five million in return and it 's being called a failure. can you ex- shameful ex- shameful explain that to me though because because the
1: studios always feel that anything that makes below a billion dollars is a failure. And especially something as hyped as Suicide Squad, they think this should have made as much as, say, Star Wars or the first Batman uh, Batman Returns or Batman vs. Superman that made, you know, massive amounts of money. Suicide Squad didn't, I mean, it, it obviously bought back its, its budget seven times over, but they wanted, like, record. They wanted to be, they, they, th- every, they think every, movie,
5: every superhero movie should be in, like, the top ten grossing films of all time. They're too busy comparing themselves to the success of Marvel. And I think that is that's the big problem for them is that a lot of these Warner Brothers execs, like they they look at these scripts, they look at the films, the final cuts, and Fox did the same thing with Fantastic Four, and that's why it's such an awful movie. Mm, but they look at these sucks. scripts. They these guys don't know anything about comic books. They don't know anything about the stories, the origins. They well know their business. They me? look at what's trending and, and, and what's worked for Marvel and they wanna copy that almost exactly and it's you know except for like the the darker tones of the movie obviously but it's it's a problem because fans don't you have your comic book fans and a lot of people who just go into these movies never reading a comic book they just want to see something cool like they don't Well they that's don't...
1: that's that's true. I mean well could you think about it like if you think like the first the first Captain America movie it did really well just because it it, it was Writing the curt tales of how good Iron Man was, but if you go back and rewatch the first Avenger, it's not that good. It's very unreal. It's it's very comic booky. It, it's, it was, it's like they didn't try to like make it more realistic. It was very like over the top. Like the the stuff's really over the top. But uh, and then they fixed everything in uh, the Winter Soldier. But if you go back and watch it, it's not. It doesn't really stand. It's like the it's like the worst of the, of Marvel's movies. I think its current stable of movies. Uh, but if you go back and watch it, it doesn't it doesn't hold up. But it,
5: it it did well because it rode the 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 curtails of Iron Man is why it did so well. And that's that's why people. That's what I was saying earlier before we were start recording is that it doesn't like it, a superhero movie is still people are going to see it regardless. Like you can make a completely crappy movie and people will still go see it just because it's a. It's, a, it's movie. a superhero movie, and it's conti- It's continuity. That I think it's, it's it's massive amounts of money have been spe- spent to hype up the movie, so you kind of feel you need to go see it just to see if it's worth it. Kind of. And, and the Warner Brothers knows this because they already have a sequel plan. They already have what mm-hmm. uh, Gotham City Sirens. Like all these characters in Suicide Squad are set to reappear in movies already. So it, it's not you can't look at something and call it a, a failure just because it didn't live up to. I think the standards
1: that... They call it a failure because people felt that Batman versus Superman, Donald Justice was not was, was a failure. They thought that that movie should have been way better, but it wasn't. Yeah. And then they thought that the saving grace was going to be Suicide Squad. And it was exponentially better than uh, Batman versus Superman, Donald Justice. I liked it personally. Uh, I felt like you could have split that into two movies. There was so much in there. Uh, same with the first Superman movie, they seem like they're trying to cram too
5: much into their films. I love that movie though. I don't know why people hated it. So Which one? Much. Uh, the Man of Steel. I liked Man of Steel, but it
1: it, it kind of felt like they rushed through a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but it was gripping. It was constant action the entire movie. Uh, they just kind of like they glazed like they just kind of glazed over his backstory, just to get to the action as fast as possible. Yeah. Um. Same with uh, the the uh, dawn of justice. It was uh, they glossed over a bunch of stuff, like a bunch of characters, minor characters. Like, why was Amy Adams in the desert? Doing oh this stuff? Yeah. See, and, they like and then Superman is all over all there, and they never explained
5: that they were trying to set up Superman. And it just that's a problem too. That's the, the classic Spider-Man three problem yes. is that they're trying to introduce too many things. But the, the thing with Batman versus Superman, those scenes in the desert, and like the scene with Robin. Randomly popping up through like a time warp, or they. No, that you wasn't think Robin. Like, that was
1: that was the Flash.
5: Yeah, uh, yeah, the Flash. It, it's all a. Uh, they're hinting at not just future films, but these are things that you would not understand if you did not read the comic books. Well, that that was just like the flashback or the
1: dream that. uh... That uh, Ben Affleck has, where he's in the future as Batman, and yeah, shows the big Omega symbol in the ground and... and the flying bugs and stuff, and then people aren't going to get what that
5: is unless it's you've red. unless you've read the comics or watched like the cartoons when you were a kid. Injustice, that's I think that's where they're ultimately going is with the Injustice, where Superman goes rogue after the death of Lois Lane. Yeah, the the part that they did do well in, if they wanted to like try to like give people
1: a sneak peek, was the file folders where Be- where Ben Affleck is scrolling through, and there's Wonder Woman, the Flash. uh uh, Aquaman Cyborg all that that was a great way to sneak peek different characters without without it. without trying to cram a bunch of stuff into a movie yeah uh, but I felt like they tried to do too much like if they just had just that and left like all the Omega stuff and Darkseid and stuff out then it would have been so much better I mean I enjoy I really liked how they incorporated uh, Wonder Woman into the movie that was fine but then you've got all this other stuff on top of it it just feels like you're
5: The audience is overloaded with, well, who's this? What's this? Well, why? uh, And and... think about it like this, too. If they don't, if they were to not introduce these characters and then put them in the next movie, people are still going to be just as stoked to see them on screen as they were. They're not going to go, well, why didn't you put them in the last movie? Yeah, that's not not what anybody's thinking. Um, David, the the note, though, from David Ayer says this it says, Thank you so much. I know it's a controversial film. I really tried to make something different with a look of, and a voice of its own. I took inspiration from the insanity of the original comics. Making a movie is a journey, not a straight line. I learned so much. People want what they want, and everyone has a personal vision of how each character should look and walk and talk. If you set out to make a mass appeal movie, it's easy to end up with vanilla. But I went for it, and now I know and I know the Squad has its flaws. Hell, the world knows it. Nothing hurts more than to pick up a newspaper and see a couple of years of your blood, sweat, and tears ripped to shreds. The hate game is strong out there. Um, In its defense, though, if you if you watch the uh, extended director's cut, it
1: makes the movie equally ten times better. There's more backstory. There's more Joker. There's just it's just better. But the movie suffered from editing. Really, what they what the studio felt wasn't important enough.
5: Well, uh, what's um. Oh crap! I'm having a super brain fart. I know Brian Singer, when he directed the first X-Men movie, he had never read an X-Men comic in his life, and neither had anybody in the studios. They just saw that as a people liked it, and they're like, yeah. "Hey, let's make a movie. Let's make millions of dollars." And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. It was not a good movie. No. I no. could not stand. I think uh, the first Wolverine movie suffered from too much studio intervention. X-Men too. Origins, yeah. And you know, at James Mangold, obviously he's not a he's not a terrible director. He's not he's good at what he does. Uh, his movies just kind of get crushed by corporate pressure, I guess you could call it. Um, They're so focused on on you
1: know appealing to certain demographics that they lose the the hardcore fans that really want the like the real a real movie. But then they. The studio steps in and is like, no, we need to tone it down so we can get more people in, different, like wider audiences, kids, teenagers, stuff, instead of just, you know, catering to the specific fan base of that movie or genre or comic book, or whatever. But, and I get that
5: you have to make money, but you, you're
1: ruining the movie
5: for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, you, you really are. Um, he goes on to say the movie was wildly successful commercially, and he was right. I mean, you can't call $745 million. A failure and the world got introduced to some very cool characters in the DC universe and That success is due exactly to the wonder and power of DC of its characters. Would I do a lot of things different? Yep, for sure. Wish I had a time machine. I'd make Joker the main villain and engineer a more grounded story. See right there I think that Suicide Squad was already pretty grounded with the exception of like the uh, you know the mystic uh aspect of it. I mean, most people already knew who the players were, and even if they didn't, they they gave you the backstory. Yeah, and you don't have these characters in there that are, they don't fly, they don't- They're not, they're, cars, they're, they're they real people, they're not- They are not they are real people they are not do not really have powers, they yeah. like, they're just crazy, and they're good with gadgets, and guns, obviously. Um, and then he goes on to say, I have to take the good and bad and learn from it. I love making movies, and I love DC. I'm a high school dropout and used to paint houses for a living. I'm lucky to have the job I have. I have to give the characters the stories and the plots uh, what they deserve next time, real talk. And no, there isn't a secret edit of the film with a bunch of Joker scenes hidden in a salt mine somewhere. That's the problem. The movie would have been
1: better, I think, if they hadn't advertised the Joker as such a major part of the movie and then just put him in there in the parts that they had and let people be surprised at the Joker. I think it would have been way better. But the way they advertised it was that he was going to be like this major character in the movie, and he
5: wasn't. After they edited all the stuff, he wasn't in it for, what, maybe 10, 15 minutes total? He he was, I, as much as I liked Jared Leto as the Joker, he played the part really well. Let's give him that. Uh, I think that his presence in the movie was m- a lot of fan service. Because you have these these people who had these interesting backstories. But the backstory between with Harley Quinn and the Joker totally overshadowed everything in the movie. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but honestly, the other characters—Deadshot
5: doesn't have a back, a major background. Now they just Captain Boomerang or
7: I, Killer Croc. Killer
5: Croc. I would have. I mean, I I've read the comics, but it would have been cool to see on screen his his backstory. Yeah. But you know, I
1: think they should have done the Joker like they did the Batman. They didn't advertise Batman being in the movie, but he was in several scenes.
5: Yeah, which was cool. They could have I mean, they could have just shown that one scene alone where him and Harley Quinn. Uh, or hardly, Where they, where they crash into the, into the lake and then the Batman saves her. That would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. So, it, Or even just the scene where they kind of dumped into the vat. Uh, yeah, and it would have, you know, whatever. We can't do anything about it. But we will continue to be giving our money to comic book movies. You
3: can find the Double J Filmcast today on the Pop Culture Cosmos Facebook page or on YouTube at Mannequin Media. We'll be right back with a taste of the latest episode from Wine, Women & Words. This is the PCC Multiverse.
4: 2017 is a pinnacle year for Rob McCallum Films. Coming off the heels of the internationally acclaimed and award-winning documentary, Missing Mom, we're in the final stages to release Kitty, Origins & Evolutions. Check out this heavy metal biopic that explores the ups and downs of rock and roll for the women and Kitty who blazed a trail in the music industry in the face of unthinkable adversity. Kitty, Origins & Evolutions releases this year from Rob McCallum Films. 2017 is the year to set your
3: future on fire. Up next, the ladies from the Triple W Wine Women Awards are talking to author Julie K. Rose about Dido's Crown. And it's coming up right
6: now.
8: I've always been kind of interested in North Africa, but then I had a dream a number of years ago where I was like literally flying over the beaches of Tunisia, and it was so beautiful, and I was completely enthralled. And I thought I've got to set a book there. So <laughs> those two things just kind of combined. I, I'm so interested in the 1930s, you know, pre-war. Um, really interested in North Africa. Had this dream, like things off the off the beaten track. So that's kind of. That's how I ended up with Tunisia. <laughs>
9: <laughs> I think it's just, I love the idea of there being a, just the outlying of from the world war two, the, cause so many books that live oftentimes like when the historical fiction, um, novel society that I'm a part of, they're not really big on the world war II era anymore. Cause they feel like it's been done so much, but mm. there's so many outlier stories to the straight up world war two. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, was that one of the aspects? I mean, you could could have totally done a World War II story with this in
6: North Africa.
9: Um, Yeah.
8: Oh, yeah, because it was such a big theater of of war there. Um, You know, I've always also been interested in, like, origin stories and the story behind the story. Um, So, and I've always been, Mm -hmm. from the time I was very small, I've loved the 1930s. So kind of those things combined is kind of what led me to, to write about that era. Um, and 1935 is so timely for us now. Um, the rise of fascism, uh, in (laughs) Europe, the rise of fascism in the UK. I mean, Oswald Mosley and his, his black shirts, they play a part in this book and it's sadly very timely for us right now. So
9: I think that's one of the reasons why I love the 1920s and 30s is because it's very, there's a lot of electricity in the air because you have this, this whole free love time, almost free love time in the 1920s where everybody's just going out and having fun. There's electricity in the air because World War One just happened and you're just getting on the verge of World War Two happening. Right.
8: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, the 30s were really, you know, especially 35, because you're coming out of the depression. Globally, we're coming out of the depression, mm-hmm. um, you know, the rise of Hitler, the rise of fascism in Europe, um, you know, changes in fashion, changes in in, in movies and, and music. It's just a really fascinating time. Um, it's just interesting to see how it sets the stage for what comes, you
10: know, in World War II. And even as a reader, you know, you're looking at the years and you know what's coming. It almost acts as like its own... Uh, added tension like well it's not going to get better like give it you know give it a couple years you might have uh, maybe a year or two or a piece of peace and quiet mary and frank and frank will probably get called back into Mm -hmm. the thick of things yeah
9: and mary's gonna tag right along behind them because she's not gonna want to miss out
10: probably so yeah
8: (laughs) yeah and and i will
10: well Maybe well, knows what you do.
8: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally see Will and Alain being part of the resistance in France. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's like a given because they'll totally be a part of that. But
10: I love um, that Alan went to to Paris to be with Will. Yeah. I, I love that.
9: Yes, I kind of expected the two of them to get together. Yeah, I was kind of expecting that one. Yeah. Maybe if the yeah. book went on, or if there were ever a sequel, the maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they
8: both, they both kind of they both lost their families, and they both are kind of outcasts, and um, they seem to understand each other. So, um, yeah, but, uh, hopefully that's a good match.
9: Well, I want to talk a little bit about your descriptions, how, the way that you're able to describe things. Um, um, Michelle, do you have a caption set aside already? Um,
10: um, I don't. But while you're you're looking, um, were you able to actually visit any of the places that you described, or was it all research-based? It was all research-based. Wow. uh,
8: As much as I wanted to go, Tunisia is kind of on a Mm no-travel list for Americans. So, um, I mean, my previous books actually came out of trips that I had made, to france and to norway so for those i had the um, you know the advantage of having been there and see what it looks like with this it was just i mean to the point where i was like okay i'm going on the google street view <laughs> and i'm seeing you know what it looks like now what's the general landscape you know google earth um and lots and lots of lots of research i'm, I'm glad it came through
9: it did it absolutely did i love the descriptions and like, here's one um, that I had highlighted that I really liked. Um, it goes, Despite her fascinations, it was the anxiety of the crowds, the hot press of bodies and breath, the muttered and cried Arabic that she couldn't understand, which drove her out through the Porte de Paris and back into the Nouvelle Ville, which my, I'm sorry, my French pronunciation is awful, as the faithful were called to the lunchtime Zohar prayer. I mean, that just gives you just such a sense of what the street was like, how how tight it was there, and just her sense of anxiety at that.
10: Mm-hmm. They, you know, they always tell you as a writer to show, not tell. And sometimes I don't really understand that. Like, sometimes I, if I do creative writing, I struggle to show, not tell. So, to see that actually happened to read a writer who is showing us instead of telling us. That's really, really interesting for me.
3: Catch the Wine Women and Words Show with Diana Tierney and Michelle Levis today on YouTube, Google Play, Podcast.com, and TuneIn Radio. Now we're digging deep into the trenches with Rob McCallum as he interviews director and animator Sarah LaGaul. Available on YouTube. At Rob McCallum Films and also on iTunes.
4: If I said skeletal warriors, talking frogs, dancing shadows, and Pinocchio, would you be able to name the one thing they all have in common? They're puppets. Dating as far back as 2000 BC, in Egypt at least, puppets of some kind have been a part of our lives. Early on, puppets were used to showcase classics like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Plato and Archimedes referenced puppets in their work, and as technology grew, so did the role of puppets. From Howdy Doody and Lamb Chop to Kermit the Frog and Punch and Judy, puppets and puppetry quickly became a staple of the early television age. Around the same time, you see the excellence of stop motion in Ray Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts, or in his work in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. though stop-motion can first be seen in The Humpty Dumpty Circus, a film that dates back to 1898. More current-day stop-motion films that might catch your ear are The Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, or James and the Giant Peach. Those stop-motion and even broad puppetry techniques can be seen in landmark film franchises such as Star Wars, Star Trek, Terminator, and a host of amazing horror films. Puppetry, in being a puppeteer, is not easy it takes years to master a lot of drive and a passion for an art form that on the surface a number of folks would relegate to being for kids if you've seen the work of my guest today you'll know that she plays with themes of loss love rebirth control and imagery that stems from everyone's unforgettable nightmares for better or worse today on the trenches is Sarah Legault Sarah how are you
11: Good, how are you doing today?
4: Oh, you know, peachy keen as always. For people that might not know, why don't you tell them where you are from and how you would describe that place?
11: How? Okay. Um, I'm from London, Ontario in Canada. We call it the, the other London.
4: The other um, London.
11: London is a interesting small city in southern Ontario. Uh, it's close to Toronto, if nobody's ever heard of it before. Um find London to be a really unique place to live. I'm not originally from here, but I found uh, that there was quite an eclectic scene uh, for art and music, which is actually what brought me here probably about 12 years ago. Um, so London has this great landscape around it of noise music. So you'll have bands like the Nihilus Spasm Band, who's been playing for 52 years, uh, where you have these uh, guys in their, they're probably in their 60s, 70s, And they decided to never play um, instruments. Uh, They learned to never actually learn how to classically play, but they wanted to scare out their uh, audience by the end of their shows. This is the dynamic of things that happen in London. People are making movies on their own. Lots of short filmmakers, lots of writers are coming from here. Um, People just seem to collaborate a lot in London, which is uh, something that really drew me to this place. Um, It's... A little different than Toronto, Toronto, there's always something happening all the time. London, you always have to build something, so I kind of like the scenes where I can participate where I can build something. so that to me is what London Ontario is
4: very interesting, given what you do, and why don't you tell us what you do? I don't want to put a you know a misnomer on on what I think that you might do, but uh, for everyone that's listening, how would you describe what you do kind of day to day in your in your form of art
11: uh I do a, a mix of everything, so I, uh, I'm an illustrator, uh, I got into stop-motion animation over the last few years, which is what I'm mainly fo- focusing on now these days. I also do painting, photography, um, filmmaking, uh, I've done producing, directing, um, Doll making. Uh, we had an art doll gallery in London for about three years, which was all handmade dolls. Which is actually what led me to start doing stop motion animation. I'm trying to remember what else. A little bit of everything. I like to. Dabble I think it's everything. a pretty <laughs> impressive
4: list so far. <laughs> How did you get involved in, in this kind of field to begin with? Like, why, why the arts? Why illustration and all that stuff? Like, where does it all begin for you?
11: I don't know. I, I always remember drawing when I was younger. I Earliest memories I have um, before kindergarten, I remember sitting and drawing with my aunt. And for some reason, this memory always stuck with me where we were just scribbling and making lots of scribbles. And she said, try and find images within the scribbles. For some reason, I thought that that was really fascinating. So I always got stuck with the idea of just scribbling and seeing where everything went. And then in school, I, you know, had bad habits of drawing in school and lots of report cards saying Sarah wasn't paying attention in class because she was too busy drawing on her friends.
4: Um, it sounds like it's a good habit at this point.
11: Yeah, it's literally something that's never really gotten away from me. It just kind of got worse the older I got, and then I got interested in other mediums, and then. Uh, When I moved to London, we had this, well, we we called these events called outdoor painting parties where we would invite everybody who was interested in writing, uh, modeling, music, uh, anything art, music, anything creative related. Uh, We would have them over to the house. uh, It was like once a week throughout the summer. And we would have probably about 20 people on the front lawn and we would try and just work on our own projects, but kind of see if people were able to collaborate together. And then we had people who are professionals, people who were just interested in what was happening, and people who were wanting to learn. And then people were able to kind of learn from each other. So we found that to be really interesting. Uh, So that became a thing where I just like to randomly go around and learn things from other artists. So I liked which is why I like collaborating with other people a lot. Um, I can learn from them, they can learn from me, or we can experiment and come up with new things that we've never done before.
4: So, you mentioned that you're not from London originally. Where did you come from? Was it Toronto?
11: No, I'm originally from a small town called Kincardin. It's on uh, the shores of Lake Huron.
4: I got family in Kincardin. You're a Huron County girl. I like you even more now.
11: We're going to be almost related then.
4: (laughs) (laughs) probably are in some weird way, which is why we probably get along so well as we do um so you're doing these outdoor painting parties and you're you're probably getting exposed to a lot of people that have a lot of different visions or a lot of different approaches to to material does does any of that stick with you are you starting to be like exposed to to new styles and techniques because you also said that you know you're getting a nice blend of uh pros and and amateurs and hobbyists there. like what is what is that artistic vibe that's coming out of these things
11: Um, well, we ended up doing a music video for a band called Johnny Hollow, uh, with everyone who was coming to these painting parties. Um, like the, I'm trying to remember how big the crew was. We grabbed fashion designers from London, all the models and actors from London. Uh, and we had people, uh, helping making masks and props for the, the sets. And we packed everyone and went to Guelph and filmed this, uh, music video called Hollow World. We did it in one day. So that's the kind of stuff that we would do with each other, and, and I've never, that was my first time producing a music video before, it was a lot of fun, um, but it was just kind of like a fun experiment for everyone.
4: So, I, I, I hate to keep belaboring this, because, but I have a reason for asking, what, what point did you move from kindergarten to London, like how long have you been there, because I'm from London as well, for everybody that's listening that may not have known, so how long have you been there?
11: i I've been in London for about twelve years
4: you so see this is the super interesting thing, okay, and this is the curse of being who I am. This is my bad luck okay. when I left London, everything good started to happen in London. Oh. I'm, <laughs> you have cemented this in in my brain in the fates that that make up my life. If I was to have a cup of tea and you were to look down at the the leftovers, that would be the fate when Rob leaves things happen good to the places that he used to live. Uh, when I left London, they built the the John Labatt Center, which is, I think, Budweiser Gardens now. They had a huge infrastructure of, of different artists that were coming in. And, of course, you moved to town as I leave. And you're describing a community in London that is completely foreign to the London that I knew.
11: Well, I find that a lot of it was uh, kind of like an underground scene. You had to know someone in order to get into some of these things.
4: So from filmmakers to animators to action figure sculptors and authors, we talk with a lot of folks, and no one has the same story. So check out The Trenches here on the Pop Culture Cosmos or on iTunes.
3: Up next is the Game Source podcast with Gerald Glassford and Douglas Hoyabu from Retro City Games, talking the struggles for JRPGs outside of their home market. This is the PCC Multiverse. For the latest reviews and opinions on everything pop culture, head on over to our brand new site www.popculturecosmos.wordpress.com. That's a that's a conversation for another day as far as reaching that type of uh, that type of game with that type of audience. And that's something I think we should deal with here on the show coming up in a, in a future episode.
0: I, I agree. Because um, it's been a long-standing problem. One of the biggest issues is um, the, the culture here in the U.S. has you know, been established where you have people... In, in Japan, a lot of times the handheld games cost just as much as the full console releases because they're considered full games. Yeah. So in the U.S., when you discount that, it's tough for a publisher to put a lot of money into it when they're already taking a 30% hit just on the retail. Yeah. So they can sell a game in Japan for $50, $60, and here it comes out 30 or 40 That's a big difference, especially when you're talking about all that time and money to rework it for a U.S. audience. So that's why a lot of them like keep getting pushed back and pre because they're working on these skeleton crews and would rather just
3: push it back than not put it out at all. You know what I mean? It's Well, there is a following here in the U.S. for Japanese games as a whole, but they don't seem... I don't know. Sometimes it just seems, like you said, it, it. you think it's going to be larger than what it is. Then when it ultimately hits the market, it just doesn't seem to translate into the numbers that you you would expect. And I, I think, like I
0: said, I think that's when you put it on like consoles like the, the Vita and things like that. I mean, I feel it started in the PlayStation 3 era, era where people were like, I'll buy a PS3 when there's the JRPGs and I want... And there were still games selling on the PS2 after the PS3 was out. And I think we kind of hit that same thing here, where there were RPGs coming out, but not the kind of RPGs people wanted to play. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are still stuck on the PS3 for all these great RPGs they wanted. But when a new PS4 RPG comes out, people don't buy it because I feel like consoles now are sold to the masses on the backs of shooters and on the backs of these big action games the Uncharted, the Call of Duties, the Halos, you know what I mean? They really drive console sales. And those niche those majority I guess majority niche markets if there are 10 RPGs to play they don't care so I think a lot of people get into it late to go back and play those games but it suffered and new game sales suffer because of it
3: what do you think they can be done to maybe liven that genre up to make it more attractive to a larger audience I think something like
0: how do I say it if Final Fantasy was a launch title and they would actually show the amount of people I talk to and they go oh Final Fantasy I'm like are you excited for the new one no I'm not really into like, turn based it's action RPG and people go holy crap but you watch the trailers and stuff and they don't show combat they don't show all that and people I think the audience the casual audience has no idea that RPGs cannot be turn based because even myself I like action RPGs over turn based I yeah. play turn based but I'm much more of an action RPG even like Tales of I get so many people into the Tales of series because I'm like, oh, they're pretty much like a, a modified action RPG of the arena type of style thing, and people buy them and they love them because it's just like playing an, an action game, yeah, with a with a skill tree. And Nino Kuni, another one like that that people people overlook because they go, oh, it's just another. But that was share. a surprise hit. It to was. An extent. It was. But it, I feel the second one's going to sell so much better than the first because people now. Oh, that don't. didn't. Well, no, it didn't. People, huh? Second, second yeah, one didn't. didn't say it, that's what I'm saying. I, I wished it had, but I felt like that was going to be the case, and I think it's part of the same problem. It's just companies, Sony's the worst at it. Informing the customer, the the casual person, showing them this is what it is and this is why it's like that instead of just pumping
3: everything out on a name. Maybe a thought is to maybe to bundle them together. Maybe yeah. t- instead of taking you know saying to these Japanese developers, hey. You're not going to be able to sell it in mass at a full price just by itself. So maybe if you partner yourself up with maybe some other JRPC, JRPGs and within the same realm or whatnot, maybe two or three together in a bundle and just going out at that. Maybe that that could garner at least a little bit more marketing power, but also as well more notoriety and better value for customers here in the U.S. That just happened uh, with uh, Yomawari
0: and. Crap, what was the other game yo yomawari uh um night alone the the collector's edition uh comes with two games on one on one cart okay so that that same idea where they knew the one game wouldn't stand on its own, so they bundled it with the other and charged a little bit more. So instead of the standard, most collector editions on the Vita are sixty bucks, as opposed to the forty for the standard game. This one was eighty, but it came with two games plus all the collector stuff. So I, I agree that might actually be a really good thing. They do it with shooters, look at, like the Bioshock series, or you see Ubisoft releasing you know their greatest hits type thing. Why not do it with RPGs? Uncharging I agree,
3: collection and whatnot. That that sold strongly at first when it came out because people were, that hadn't played it. Uh, wanted to get into the series, the same thing, like I said, with, would go for this as far as with three, you know, decently or, or quality rated G, or JRPGs coming out from Japan, bundled together, maybe getting a better uh, distributor here for the U.S. or somebody that's going to put some money into it. Maybe that's a better package to sell to consumers.
0: Well, we also see, you know, the trend for a while was JRPGs didn't sell very well. They were that niche group. And so a lot of them come here and they are limited quantities. I mean, look at, look at Xenoblade, the first Xenoblade. It was a GameStop exclusive, and they couldn't keep it in stock. Yeah. To the point where they were reprinting the game, opening it, and selling it for more. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of demand. So, I, I think it's part of just that, that limited availability that some people don't want to get into it because it is kind of expensive. Yeah. Even look back. I mean, you start buying PS1, PS2, and like even some PS3 RPGs are starting to creep up. It's an expensive thing to get into. So if you're not if you're not in on it the second it comes out, they don't sit on store shelves for a year. They no. don't end up in the, the twenty dollars section at Best Buy and Walmart because there weren't enough copies made. So and it's weird because we see that from big companies like Square, where we don't see you know games like Final Fantasy fifteen. I, I guarantee six months later it'll be hard to find that game new, even though it's a Final Fantasy game. I mean, you already see, uh, what is it, the HD collection has been set That in- I may disagree
3: with you on because I yeah. think that's going to go, I think that's going to be trying to push big. I think there's so much of a development issue and development cost, which we're going to get into with The Last Guardian. Um, I think that it, it just, they need to go ahead and push that out with commercials and whatnot. So, in six months, you will be able to still Ooh. find that. Even
0: like the, um, the, the HD collection um, that they, they put out. Well, that's that, different. Well, that, that, I'm saying that, that, that's that pulled off shelves and then came back. They did another production run, and now it's in like the twenty dollars bins. But there was a good there was a good while you couldn't find that game.
3: Okay, but fifteen I might have to disagree with you on because I think okay. they, they're targeting that as a AAA game.
0: I'm like I said, I'm just worried it's going to sell like a AAA game. I don't know if it will. I think you'll have the hardcore fan base go out and buy it. I don't know if it'll get new people into the series because we haven't seen like I said we haven't seen any Final Fantasy has this problem with and a lot of JRPGs advertising with cutscenes and story, and they don't advertise with gameplay, and you know. So when when you have games like, you know, Ninja Gaiden 2 <laughs> out selling Final Fantasy games that, that uh
3: generation. When it's similar game that's 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 really weird. <laughs> well yeah, because they, they have to approach when they're advertising and marketing this to a different base. They have to market it towards that base and they can't market it use the same marketing strategies and campaigns that they used in Japan here it's so similar thing to Europe you have to use a different marketing strategy when you go and market to Europe than way you, the way you would in the US because the the tastes as far as the consumers as far as they're different than what they are in each region yeah and it's it's
0: I don't think they've done a good job of that because like I said I just for me on this side of the counter a lot of people come in and have no clue how this game or that game plays because the, the customer is lazy they're not gonna most people if they hear about a game, and they go, eh, it doesn't look like like something I play based off that cutscene or based off that commercial, they're not going to go check out, you know, oh, how's the gameplay? Most people don't do that. Yeah. But if they see the commercial and they go, oh, that looks kind of cool, then they'll go look at it for a second and go, yeah, I want to play this. Definitely. But if you don't grab them in that that first impression, a lot of people are just done with it. And then, unfortunately, the Internet, they hear a couple people say the same thing they do, and all of a sudden, that's the majority opinion, and it's over. And I... I, Like I said, because maybe it's just because of the retro market we're in I mean people really want RPGs that's what I mean RPGs are a
6: huge
0: thing obviously
6: Yeah.
0: but newer RPGs don't sell that well and then a year later they jump in price because everybody wants them so I mean I agree with you I, I think it
3: does. You see it a lot on eBay and whatnot. So they go onto the the black market, and and the prices skyrocket from there, depending on the the accessibility of the actual game.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's just because later down the road, more people realize, oh, this probably was a good game because more people were saying it was. So I want to try it now, and they have no problem paying that sixty, seventy, eighty dollar premium for that game they could have picked up for fifty or sixty or even twenty at certain times. Exactly because of that.
3: Yeah, no, that's a, that's great points indeed. Uh, so that was a, uh, a little bit of extra sorry. there. Yeah. No, that was great. But Retro City Games has a large community as well. They've got a, a massive audience that, that interacts with each other on a daily basis and also interacts with Nicole and Doug on a, well, more than a <laughs> daily basis, I can assure you. So they're, they're great indeed. So check it out, Retro City Games, on Facebook. The leaders in video gaming right here at Southern Nevada. Catch the Game Source podcast today on iTunes, Google Play, and Podcast. dot com. Thanks so much for listening to the PCC Multiverse. If you have questions for us here on the show, send us a message on the Pop Culture Cosmos Facebook page, at Pop Culture Cosmo on Twitter, or send us an email to popculturecosmos at yahoo. dot com. So for everyone from the Pop Culture Cosmos family. This is Gerald Glassford. Thank you so much for listening today. It's another beautiful day in paradise here in the PCC multiverse. And here's hoping you have yourself a great day. This has
9: been a broadcast of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek, classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at esonetwork.com.
4: Tangent
0: Bound Network. Let your voice be heard
6: tangentfoundnetwork.com.